All right. Well, guys, welcome. Um, it's good to be back. Those of you that were here last week, I was not. I was on the other side of the world. Um, and so myself and Ashley and a few others were in the Holy Land. And it was an amazing, amazing trip. Everything that we've been learning in here for two years, um, we got to stand on a mountain where you could see all of it. Literally, every single spot. You could see the entire area. It was pretty incredible. And this is actually that mountain right here. So you can look from one to the other. There's the bronze serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness that commemorates us. Not the real one because it was destroyed. But you can see everything. So this, this mountain, this Mount Nebo, where Moses was taken up at the end of Deuteronomy, the last chapter, will be standing on this point. And all of these lands are going to be named. It was amazing weather. It was just gorgeous. Um, but this, this area, at the bottom of this mountain, the plain of Moab, that's where all of Deuteronomy takes place. So Israel is standing at the base of that mountain, somewhere in that vicinity. And Moses is speaking to them, and he's speaking to them what we've been reading all year. He's speaking to them Deuteronomy. He's re-giving the covenant to them. He's reinstating it. So this is, like we said, it's the generation that came out of the Exodus. They died. Their kids are now going to go into the land across the River Jordan. And you can see in the picture, you know, and, and, and Ashley could tell you too, like you, you just stand there, you look, and you're like, well, there's Jericho. Like I see Jericho right there. There's the Jordan River. There's the Dead Sea. There's the Sea of God. Like you can see everything. So it's not like this long journey that we're thinking of. They're camped out right across the valley from Jericho where they're going to go in. And then the land, the hills rise up in the background, the hill country of Judea. And then you take a right and you go up towards the north, the Jordan Valley, up towards the north. Or you take a left and you go south towards the Negev. So that's what Israel's going to do. They're, going to, they're looking. They're going to go in. They're going to set up shop. Then they're going to fan out one direction and then the other as they take the land eventually little by little by little until they get to the coastlands because the people inhabiting those lands those hill that hill country are the canaanites and they're the canaanites that god has waited for 400 years to finally bring judgment on he's let their sin fill up their practices fill up before his judgment is ripe so to speak and, and that's what he told Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. Is you're, you know, it's 400 years from now because the sin of the Amorites, these people in this region, has not yet reached its full measure. So now Israel going into the land means that their sin has reached its full measure in God's eyes. We don't know. Looking at it from the outside, you may not know. Um, that's a judgment that humans aren't able to make. We don't get to make it. God was the one that was directing this specific conquest and it was never to be repeated in Israel's history. It was a one-time thing. And so we'll see more of that when we get to Joshua and, and how Israel's actually not going to do what God called them to. But we're still in Deuteronomy. We're in chapter 14. And last time, so a couple of weeks ago when we were together, Moses had went over what to do when they get into that land, when they go into that hill country, and they see all of the high places. And they start to encounter the people that worship at those high places. 
and, and all of the different hilltops, which being there, they're just, they're everywhere. Hilltops are everywhere. And so the Canaanites would set up shop on these hilltops where they would worship their god, Baal, and in hopes of bringing fertility. That Asherah and Baal would consort, and then that would bring forth fertility in the land. Um, there were all of these rites, all of these things. Well, we, where we were, and where the text is right now, on the Moab side, they had gods like Moloch and Chemosh. And these were the gods of the underworld. These were gods who, uh, if you want to get their favor, you did more violent acts, you know, and, and even child sacrifice. Um, so this is the type of milieu into which Moses, God is bringing the people after Moses dies. So it's a daunting thing, and, and they're looking at it, and Moses is giving Israel his last, their last instructions before literally he dies and they go into the land. He's preparing the troops. And in the previous chapter, in chapter 13, he told them, this is how you're to treat people who try to lure you away from the very first foundational commitment that you have as a people, which is to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. That's the basis on everything. The covenant is what everything stands on. Remove the covenant, sever that relationship, disaster. And that's Israel. The previous generation had found out the incident with Balaam. Uh, where he had them do that through their, uh, the, go back and check numbers for that. I don't want to get into it. But they sever the relationship, then that means their covenant protection's gone. And that's what Balaam had actually led the Moabites to help Israel accomplish uh, with disastrous results. So when they go in, God's like, don't play. Don't play with idolatry. Don't play with, with the Canaanite gods of syncretism. A little bit of Yahweh, but then a little bit of Baal just to hedge my bets. It's got to be clean. You are a cleansing agent in this land to these people groups. You are to cleanse this land. For, that's why he says, now, don't just drive the people out. Destroy, last, the last chapter, destroy the high places. Smash the Asherah poles. Knock down. It's God's concerned with ridding the land of those practices much more than of individual people. And we see that because some of the people of the land end up being saved and coming into the community of faith. People like Rahab, people like Ruth, a whole list of them. So <clears throat> that's what God's concerned about. Now he's going to move into from how they, um, holiness in the religious sphere to he's going to reemphasize from the first covenant, the covenant that, that he's reaffirming the holiness in the personal sphere. And it's going to have to do with the most, uh, the center of daily life for the people, which is eating. Eating is the thing that you did together. Eating is the thing in the, in the ancient Near East, and even today, it's, it's considered, at least outside of fast food cultures, it's considered a social event. Inviting somebody to have a meal is not just letting them come fill their body with nourishment, but it's actually inviting them into a relationship, into fellowship. And so because of that, what God's saying is in the covenant, and this, this, is re, this chapter is going to re- uh, affirm basically what Leviticus 11, what God revealed to the people then, to their parents' generation, but is going to basically say you're to honor God not just in how you worship, but in how you fellowship, in how you eat, in how you do your daily life. Because the covenant is to touch all aspects of Israel's daily life. <clears throat> so it says, chapter 14, 
It starts out by saying, the children of the Lord your God you are. And NIV says you are children of the Lord your God, but the Hebrew syntax is children of the Lord you are. And their, their identity is rooting all of this in the fact that they are God's children. So, do not, first provision, do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead, for you are a people consecrated to the Lord your God. This is a Canaanite ritual. This is a mourning ritual. You'd see it in texts where uh, El would mourn the death of Baal by gashing his body, or people would mourn or, 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 or pay respect to the spirits of the ancestors by shaving the head as a mourning ritual. Um, as a like grieving ritual. So God's saying, all right, he's already talked about their high places. Now even in the daily life, cut out the paganism. Don't do the things that they do in this land because you're a people holy to the Lord. Holy, consecrated, set apart. Israel is to be distinct even as they go into the midst of these peoples. They're to be a light shining in darkness. All of these themes that we'll see developed later in Scripture and given spiritual meaning started out in a lot of ways with, with physical embodiment to carry forth that spiritual message. So, verse, uh, verse 2 goes on, Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be His treasured possession. Um, the, 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 word, the Hebrew word means that the king had all of his treasures, so like the king owned everything. But the king had his specific treasure that was kept in his storehouse, not in the government storehouse, not in the uh, temple complex, but, but like his own, his own treasure. So the king owned it all. all of the, everything was the king's. But then he had a particular treasure that he and he alone used or reserved for his own use. And that's what Israel is. God's using that metaphor to describe Israel. God loves all people. Israel's whole purpose is to go into the land so that they can be a light to the nations so that the promise of Abraham, the blessing of the nations, will be brought forth through them. But God's saying that they have a special purpose. And if they tarnish that purpose by becoming like the people they're going among, then they've, they've, the, the vehicle that will save the world is broken down. Because that's their destiny that he's called them to. So he's pleading and urging and warning them in so many different ways. So then, uh, he's going to say, now, again, this is all Leviticus 11. This is reaffirming this. Do not eat any detestable thing. Any abomination, if you have a King James. It's a word that just means a ritually unclean thing that you're not supposed to eat. It says, do not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals you can eat. So he's going to first go through the land animals you can eat. Ox, sheep, goat, deer, gazelle. Uh, and then there are all these other terms. These taxonomical terms are not precise. So different translations translate them different ways because they're, they're Hebrew designations for types of animals. So we don't know exactly sometimes which specific animal it's being referred to, but they would have at the time. Um, so the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, the mountain sheep. You can eat any animal that has a split hoof divided in two or that... Choose the cud. And, and that, that phrase, it doesn't necessarily mean chewing the cud like, like ruminants do, where they eat, swallow grass, goes into one stomach chamber, then they bring it back up and chew it some more, and then it goes into the second stomach. And they do that four times. That's, the animals that are described don't do that. It's a generic term that means chewing the cud. If you ever had a pet rabbit, it always looks like it's chewing something, even when it's not. It's, it's just that, mo that that's what it means. It's phenomenological language not taxonomical or biological language. And so it's describing, he's saying those things, don't eat those things. Um, you made any animal that split hoof, 
divided in two and that chews the cud. However, of those that chew the cud or have a split hoof completely divided, you may not eat the camel, the rabbit, the coney. Although they chew the cud, they don't have a split hoof, so they're ceremonial and clean for you. The pig is also unclean. Although it has a split hoof, it does not chew the cud. You are not to eat the meat or touch their carcasses. So the land animals, they can't eat. Can't eat camels, can't eat rabbits, can't eat conies, uh, can't eat pigs. The other animals, land animals, they can eat. <clears throat> so he's giving general guidelines. Now there are animals that don't fit either of those two categories precisely, and that's where it, Israel would have to work out and the, the rabbinic Torah law would have to make a ruling. But in general, God, again, he's giving them guidelines and he's setting it up where even their diet is going to set them apart. Some people say, well, the animals they couldn't eat un that are unclean are, are unclean because they're unhealthy. Well, that's not actually true. There's nothing in the text that says anything about health. When you, those are usually, those claims are made either to bolster some kind of Hebraic uh, offshoot religion, you know, like people that are like um, the Hebraism, like, oh, we're going to keep Torah and we're going to eat these animals. And, you know, they'll make videos on YouTube about how pork is going to kill you and there's worms that grow out of it and all this stuff. Um, and and it, that's not the, ever the reason that's given in Scripture. In fact, some of the animals are fine to eat. Rabbit. There's nothing wrong with rabbit. It doesn't have any kind of health benefit. God is making distinctions, and the distinctions are based on these physical characteristics of these animals. And the purpose is to set Israel apart. That's, that's, the, that's the whole purpose. And, and so people can debate and wonder and talk about the Bible diet and sell a lot of books and seminars and stuff on it. But at the end of the day, God's saying you're going to be different. But he's not making health generalizations because later, as we'll see, he says these animals, you can sell them to the foreigners. You can give them to the Gentiles among you. They can eat them. You are not to eat them. So again, it's not for human health. It's for specific setting apart of the people. Now, some of the animals that you'll see, especially the birds, they are not good to eat. <laughs> they do eat dead things. They do have a lot of pathogens and things in them that we don't want to eat them. But again, the text itself, God is emphasizing to Israel, you're, just, you're to be different. You're to be set apart. So those are the end animals. Then he goes on to say, of all the creatures living in the water, you can eat any that has fins and scales. But anything that doesn't have fins and scales, you may not eat, for it's unclean. You may eat any bird. But these are the birds you can't eat. So you can eat any bird you want, except, and then he lists a list of birds you can't eat. And these are all birds of prey. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, the black kite, any kind of falcon, any kind of raven, the horned owl, the screech owl, the gull, any kind of hawk, the little owl, the great owl, the white owl, the desert owl. So owls, do not eat owls is the bottom line here. Um, the osprey, the cormorant, the stork, any kind of heron, the hoopy, and the bat. So those are the things you can't eat if you're an Israelite under the Mosaic Covenant. And then 19, all flying insects that swarm are unclean to you, so don't eat them. But any winged creature that is clean, you can eat. Verse 21, don't eat anything you find already dead. You may give it to an alien living in any of your towns, and he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. But you are a people holy to the Lord your God. So no roadkill. Alright, if you find it, you can give it, you know, and, and that's a big deal. No, in Alaska today, like you go to Alaska, when moose get hit by trucks every now and then, the moose will, they'll take it to the homeless shelter and that'll feed people for like weeks worth of food. Well, a moose and a camel are roughly the same size. When a camel dies, that's a huge find. If it's not rotting, that could feed people for a lot. So this, again, it's God saying, this is, you are going to be different in this way. You're going to be different than the Canaanites. And then the last one that it concludes this section with that feeds into the next section 
um, is do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. This is the third time this commandment's been given. Twice in Exodus, God said it. What we do know from Ugaritic tablets, from Rosh Hashanah and these places around the region, is there was mention of cooking goats in milk, cooking a kid in milk. And it was part of, we don't know because the text is unclear, but it was, had something to do with some kind of ritual. And this whole section is about abstaining from Canaanite rituals, and it's going to get into it uh, even more, how they can eat and what they can do with their meals. But this do not cook a kid in its mother's milk, whatever the reason. Some people said it's, it's you know, an act of cruelty, the thing that gives the baby animal life, you're now cooking it in it, and that's just cruel. Uh, maybe, I mean, that's pretty cruel. That's kind of why I don't eat veal or foie gras or any of the other stuff that's mate from cruelty. But m- more than that, there are possibly fertile like fertility concepts having to do with it. That cooking a, a baby goat in its mother's milk will somehow have some effect on the rest of the flock or the other females that, that they may produce more milk. Or so, I, it's, it's, it's weird. It's, it's ancient practice. We don't have all the details, but much like child sacrifice, it doesn't really make sense. And God's saying, don't do it. And so that's kind of, for Israel, that settles it. Then it moves on. So we've talked about the things that you can't eat that you're not supposed to eat, now it'll transition into, now this is how you are going to eat. So be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. So every year, set aside a tenth of what your fields produce. Then that tithe, eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. So, what is the tithe for? To make the preacher wealthy? Nope. You bring the tithe, you present it to God, you eat of it with your community. The the offerings were always meant to be celebratory. It was all we, we, two years ago, if you were with us, we went through Leviticus and that was, we talked about over and over how the presenting of the offerings, the reason people didn't just drudge up there and, oh, I got to put this in the offering plate. No. It was a feast. It was a time to gather. You've seen how you're not supposed to eat and what you're not supposed to eat and how you're not supposed to worship because that's how the Canaanites do it. Now here's how you're going to worship. You're going to take a tenth of the produce of the land that I bless, not Baal and Asherah. You're going to bring it into my temple and you're going to offer it to me and I'm going to, other than that whole bird offering part, I'm going to symbolically give it back to you and you're going to eat with each other and then the leftover is going to go to help upkeep the temple to feed the priests the levites and the poor with uh, the widows and the orphans that's what god designed it for i mean think covered dish supper you know if you're going to think the sacrificial system it's much closer to a covered dish supper than come and drop your check in the offering and, and, and so that's the kind of symbol, the world that israel that god wanted israel to be that society wanted them to be He goes on to say, um, but, now this is all well and good, but what are those who live far away? You know, some are going to live down in Beersheba, down in the desert. Some are going to live all the way up north in Dan. Some are going to live on the Transjordan and Gilead and Bashan and all these places. So the the temple can only be one place. The tabernacle will end up somewhere, whether it's Shiloh, whether it's Jerusalem. So what about, how how are we supposed to bring a tenth of all that we produce all the way to the temple? 
God says, don't worry. Here's what you're going to do. If the place is too distant and you've been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put His name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver or money and take the silver with you. Go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink, anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. And, and do not neglect the Levites living in your towns, for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. So what you do, you take your produce, your goods, you sell it in your town to the Levites, to merchants, to whoever. You've given now you've got the money for it, so you don't have to carry a bunch of sheep, a tenth of your cattle, a tenth of your crops. Now you take that money to the temple, the tabernacle, later the temple, then you buy the offerings there. See, a lot of people think Jesus got mad because the money changers were selling their stuff. No, that's part, God set it up that way. The money changers in the temple were doing their job and they were upholding Torah. They weren't cheating people either. There's no evidence that they were cheating. What he, said, what he was mad about was where they were doing it. They set up shop in the court of Gentiles, which is the only place in the temple where Gentiles, God-fearers, could come and pray to the Lord. That's why he said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it into a den of brigands or revolutionaries or, or zealots. And so he goes, that's, so it's a common misunderstanding when people think about Jesus. The money changers in the temple were doing what Torah required. They just weren't to be doing it in the temple. They should have done it somewhere else. They had used it. It's a whole other story. When you get to the New Testament, you'll see how they twisted and turned this into something that was very inwardly focused, nationalistic, and militaristic. But Jesus said the whole time, no, you're supposed to be outwardly focused. You're supposed to be a light to the nations. And that's what he was more upset about. But anyway, back to this section. So it says then, verse 28, and this is, gets into the next chapter, so we won't have time to go into it. Um, it it kind of dovetails right into it. it says at the end of every three years so every year bring your tithe your tithe goes to the, temp the temple tabernacle you celebrate you offer it you eat together you feast the leftovers go to the priest the poor whoever then every three years bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so don't bring it to the temple the central temple store it in your towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the aliens, fatherless, and the widows who live in your town may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you in the work, all the work of your hands. So every three years, so one year, bring in your tithe, offer it at the tabernacle. Next year, same thing. Next year, same thing. Third year. You bring in your tithe, you don't take it to Jerusalem, you put it in your town there. That's how the Levites are assured that they'll survive. Every three years. So it's not every year, but the Levites, the poor, the widows, the orphans, the people that don't have the ability to produce wealth are given a little bit every three years. They're given enough to sustain. So it's this cross. Some people will jump on this if they're if they're pull up political leaning is leftist, they'll jump on this and go, see, the Bible commands welfare. Not exactly, but it does command society taking care of its poor. People that are on the right, they jump in and go, yeah, but it's every three years because they don't want to create a dependent society. And yeah, that's true. It's not every year. And it is to help them avoid what we would see as generational poverty. 
But when you combine Israel, when you look at Israel's economy, because the next section that we'll look at uh, next time we meet talks about then every set, what do you do on seven year? So three years, do one thing, then another three years, then on the seventh year, you cancel all debts. And, and you don't, and according to Exodus, way back in Exodus 23, uh, you don't even plow the land that year. That seventh year, the land remains uncultivated so that the poor, the widow, the orphan can actually do agriculture on it. So it's this system that it, it, it's a beautiful balance. You see in this God's heart for, yes, the community where people are working to produce. And if they're doing it in connection with him, he'll bless the work of their hands. But it assumes that there will be people in that community at all times who cannot work and produce. So therefore, it is the job. This is where the libertarian would be like, wait a minute, <laughs> and I'm libertarian. But no, it is the job of the people as a whole to provide for the people who can't. Now, how that works and what that looks like in our society versus ancient Near East Mosaic Covenant, that's where politicians can debate and squabble. But the principle there is society takes care of the weakest and God will bless them for doing so. But they do it through the society as a whole, producing, working, giving people the ability to do that, giving things like the law of gleaning, where you allow someone to come and work a field without requiring any payment for it. You know, the storehouse tithes, the tithes every third year, the year of Jubilee, where all the land goes back to its original owners, the every seven-year debt cancellation. Um, every slave that's owned in the land has to be let free every seven years. So somebody sells himself into slavery, you only get them for up to seven years at most. All of these things are put in place, and we don't see them unless we read through all of Torah and we see all the laws together, then we start to see the society that God envisioned. The last point I'll make before we end in 30 seconds is that the clean-unclean thing, what's going on there? If you weren't with us in Leviticus back two years ago, we talked about the, the, everything that God's doing is like an object lesson. Like his, Israel is God's children's sermon. If you ever seen a children's sermon and the preacher goes, invites the kids, and he does a little object lesson, and that teaches them something that they can remember and that the parents can remember? Well, Israel is that children's sermon, including Torah and their diet. So Israel was called to be, so you had all the people in the world. All the people are God's creation. Every human being is bare of God's image. And out of all the people, God pulled this one people. Israel. By, at this point, they're a covenant people. He said, you're going to be special because you have a purpose. And then within that covenant people, he pulled another subset, which were the Levites. And he said, and you guys have an even more specific purpose. And you're going to be the means through which I relate to the people, and the people will be the means through which I relate to all the earth. So you had these three concentric rings of holiness. Ritual holiness. Well, what we see, and, and Jacob Milgren and Christopher Wright and, and Jewish and Christian theologians have noticed this throughout the years, is that is the symbolically corresponds to humanity. The animals and humanity are symbols of each other. So all the animals God created, Psalm 104, they're all good, they're all wonderful, Psalm 19, they're all God's handiwork. But within those animals, they're the clean animals. They're the animals that Israel can eat. And then within that subset, there are the sacrificial animals. Those are the animals that Israel can offer as sacrifices. So those three concentric layers of animals correspond exactly to the, layers, the concentric layers of people 
all to communicate the concept of God, holiness and his desire to reach the world and his system of society that he set up, all of these layers of meaning. And what happens when Jesus comes? That separation, clean, unclean, Jews, Gentiles, when Jesus comes, he says, no, it's not what goes into you that defiles, it's what comes out of you, meaning your thoughts and your deeds and your practices. So Jesus already, in the ministry of Jesus, Mark 7, that distinction between clean and unclean foods is starting to dissolve as Jesus is fulfilling, bringing this covenant to its completion. Then after he's brought it to its completion completely, then God sends his people out to the Gentiles. And when Peter doesn't want to go to the Gentiles because they are unclean, what does God send him a vision of? A sheet lowers down and it's filled with all these animals that you're not supposed to eat. And he says, what I've called clean, don't call unclean. Now go to the Gentiles. So was he telling Peter that he can eat whatever he wants and be omnivorous? Maybe secondarily. Primarily he was saying the clean, unclean distinction in the human realm was part of the Sinai covenant and that's finished. Now the new covenant takes that out to the nations. The gospel goes and who believes in the gospel, Jew or Gentile, enters into Israel and they are clean. So it's this radical paradigm shift in the New Testament. But it, it, when you see the food laws in the Old Testament and you start to understand what God was doing over the centuries, then it all starts to make a little more sense and you can see the object lesson. Uh, but we are two minutes over. We started two minutes late, so it's perfect timing. You guys, next week, we're not going to meet. I tried to, I'm going to be teaching for Samaritan's Purse in the Caribbean. I tried to get a substitute. I couldn't get anybody. So next week, you're on your own. But then after that, I'll get back, and then there's only one, maybe two weeks in July that we won't meet. So summer's kind of touch and go. Summer schedule, just be flexible. Um, if you do ever show up, and I've tried to arrange for a guest teacher, and something happens and they're not here, just read the Bible and talk to each other and, and enjoy food because <laughs> that's just as holy and spiritual as anything I say. So have a great week, and we'll see you next time.